Well, good morning. You know, growing up, um, I moved around a lot. Um, I think I tried to count, and in my head, I think I moved seven different times before fifth grade, uh, which is quite a bit. Um, not very far, mind you, but different housing arrangements, uh, whether it was apartments, staying with my grandparents, uh, a rental, um, moved around a lot, and that can create a lot of instability in, in one's life. Um, thankfully, once fifth grade came around, um, it, my life kind of stabilized a little bit in that department and was able to finish school in one place from fifth grade through twelfth grade. Uh, I graduated from a school that was very similar in size to Coshocton. Uh, my graduating class was 125, which I think is about on par for Coshocton. Um, I was involved in band, sports, uh, choir, musicals, theater, and different, pardon me, different clubs like National Honor Society and things of that nature. And somehow, even with all of that being said, I was able to connect and relate with people from different groups. I had friends that were in sports with me. I had friends that were in choir and band. Uh, and, and anyone who comes from a larger context might go, well, how in the world were you able to have friends in all of these different groups? Because those different groups didn't necessarily mingle. <laughs> um, uh, it's just the way it is in a smaller school, I guess. Um, but I had I had friends in groups, uh, in these different groups, and seemed to be kind of like the glue that kind of held these different groups together, at least it felt that way to me. Um, but I had a group of friends that lived on the same street as I did, uh, again, from once, I, once fifth grade hit, uh, was able to live in a house on a development where there were other kids in my grade, and, uh, you know, these, these are the guys that I would call my best friends, because we spent lot of time together. We spent all summer together playing outside, riding our bikes, playing inside, playing during the day, playing during the night. I remember I had a friend who had a house that was kind of built uh, on a hill, and so he had, like, uh, he had to drive up the driveway to the front door, but his basement was a walkout basement, right? So it was kind of built on a hill, and he had woods, and we would play kick the can, and everybody would dress up in black, you know, and you can't see anything, um, and we would have a blast playing at night and doing all of these things. I thought these would be my best friends for the rest of my life. Maybe you can relate. After graduation, life changed. Not just for me, but for all my friends, too. We kind of each went our own ways. I had some friends that came down to Ohio State. I had friends that went to different colleges than I did. Um, and uh, the reality is, uh, we went our different ways. I got married at 20 and tried to balance married life and college at the same time, which was quite difficult. And over time, not because of any other reason, I lost touch with these friends. My best friends ones I would call and, and hang out with and spend so much time with. Over time, we lost touch. A few years ago, I, I decided to reach out to one of my best friends growing up uh, that we spent so many, the, the guy that we played kick the can, you know, 
And I said, hey, can, can we catch up? Like, I'd love to sit down and, and hear, you know, what's going on in your life. And we sat down and we reminisced about all these old memories we had. And it was great recalling those memories. But the more we talked about life, the more I realized how far apart we had actually grown in different ways. And that's hard. It wasn't, it wasn't that it was either of our fault. It just is reality. We just went different ways and focused on different things. Well, that same reality plays out in our relationship with the Lord. Not to the same degree, but the concept is there. Kind of looks like this. We make a decision to, to surrender our life to Jesus, and at first we seem to be on fire for Jesus. We seem to love him with all of our heart, and, we, and our relationship with him is, is like as close as it could ever be. But after time, and especially after we sin again, or struggle with sin, we begin to fall away from him. Our relationship changes, our focus changes, and we might be stuck in that waywardness for a short time or a long time. Now, the difference here is that God never leaves us. It's always us leaving him. And so, where the analogy or the metaphor falls short is, with my best friend, we both went like this, right? With God, it's this. We're just not looking at him. We're not following him. We're not relating with him. But he's always there. And we might struggle with this, and we might get stuck like this for a short time or a long time. But then something might happen. And we're reminded of Jesus again. And by some miracle, we're drawn back to him, to follow him once again. This is very true in my life. Uh, like I said, Amy and I got married when we were young. I was 20, she was 19, and uh, I was a very, very new believer at that point. I had only recently accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior at 18. Uh, didn't know much. I was very green behind the ears, if you will, in my faith. And we got married, and that was it, man. We were, we were doing our own thing, and we fell away. And then the Lord blesses us with our firstborn, and by some miracle... You know, we know, we know that that was the Holy Spirit. But by some miracle, God draws Amy's heart back to him and says, out of nowhere, she says, we need to go back to church because I want to raise my kids in the church. To which I didn't have any objections to. But this is how it happens, right? We fall away. And, and sometimes God lets us wander for a very long time before he draws us back. Sometimes it's not a long time. Sometimes it's a short time. But there's usually something that draws us back to him, and we surrender again, and we give our life back and begin to follow him again. And unfortunately, for some, this cycle repeats itself multiple times throughout life. As we've seen the context and setting of the book of Judges, we know that there's a generation of people of Israel who do not know God relationally. They may, they may know some of the stories and, and things like that, but they don't know him. 
There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God relationally. And here in the book, we, we know that there's a generation that does not know God relationally. That generation had, had passed on. Well, this morning, we're going to look and finally get to our first judge in the book. And as we do, I want us to see a pattern or a cycle that's going to prove true throughout the rest of this book. And that cycle looks like this. Israel falls into apostasy, which then leads into servitude, which then leads to supplication and salvation for a period of time, and then the cycle repeats itself. And we're going to see this cycle all throughout the book of Judges. So, hopefully you have your Bibles with you, and you have them open to Judges 3. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, there is one in the, in the chairs around the, around the room. I invite you to open up to one. And I just encourage you, with the word open, let us go before the Lord and pray before we read his word. Lord, I pray that as we come, Lord, we, we do kind of a heart check before you, Lord. Lord, it's really easy to know about you and to find comfort in knowing about you, to find uh, security in knowing things about you. But Lord, you don't simply want us to know about you. You want us to know you, to be in a relationship with you, Lord. Lord, my heart is that that would be true for each person here this morning, Lord, and, and for those who will listen later on, Lord, is that we would come to a place in our innermost being where we desire to know you that way. And we're thankful that all who come that way, Lord, you meet us there. Like, you don't hide yourself from us, Lord. You are available. You pursue us if we would just pursue you in this way. Lord, we have your word open, and, and we know the setting and, and the difficult things in your word uh, uh, throughout the book of Judges. Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate what we need to hear from you this morning. And it wouldn't just be uh, more knowledge to know about you, but Lord, that we would be able to take what we hear and what we read Lord, and that we would allow it to help us to know you more in a relationship, Lord. That we would apply your word to our lives, to our understanding, to our relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, we need you. Jesus, we need you. Heavenly Father, we need you. Would you meet us in this place and would you lead us in this time? It's in your name I pray. Amen. I'll be reading out of my English Standard Version. You can read out along in yours. We'll start in verse 7 and read through 11 of Judges 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshatham king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Reshatham eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz. 
Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Reshatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshatham. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the Lord's word. We see here the beginning of the cycle, apostasy, in verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Apostasy is simply the abandonment or the renunciation of a religious or political belief. In this case, it was Israel forgetting God and choosing these other lowercase g gods, the gods of the culture, Baal and Asherah. We see that in verse 7, that Israel left God, Yahweh, behind and moved on to these idols. And it says that they forgot him. Which is like, you read that and you go like, how in the world could you forget God and all that he's done for you? How could you forget being led out of, out of Egypt and led across the, the, the Red Sea and, and all, of the, all of those things, you know, that, that your ancestors had told you stories about, how could you choose to forget? We see that they, they leave them behind and they forgot them and they, they go after the other gods of the culture, Baal and Asherah to be specific, but I, I think that the point here is, is that they leave the personal God and they go after the cultural gods of their day. Specifically, yes, Baal and Asherah, but these were the gods of the culture of the land that they were inheriting, that they were supposed to kick these guys out, remember, and all of, all of what they had, and instead they settle with them, and therefore they, they adopt the culture that they move into. Which made me pause and, and say, okay, well, what are the gods of our culture? Because we're human, just like the Israelites were. And we struggle with the same temptations and the same distractions and the same things that lead us away from God. So what are the gods of our culture? I, I think the very primary god of our culture is me, myself, and I. I had a mentor one time that says, you know, you can't spell sin without I. With a capital I. It's this mentality of me, my wants, my selfish desires, my what I want, my preferences, my, my, my. And we live in a culture here in America where that is rampant. It's literally the culture of America. You can have anything you want as long as you put your mind to it and you put in hard work. Me, myself, and I. It's number one God in our culture. Now, that plays out in a variety of different ways and different desires, but it all comes back to me, my wants, my selfishness, my desires. And that's idolatry. 
Idolatry, simply put, is anything we place a higher value in, or at least in the same, the same plane, even, as God in value. Doesn't, it doesn't have to sur- supersede God, but if it's on the same platform, if it's on the same level of desire, that is idolatry as well. And this can happen with the familiar things, the safe things, the, the, the things that, that we find security in. And it can also be the new shiny things that we pursue. That we place value in, either in the, the, the familiar things or the new shiny things. And we place a value in these things. These are cultural gods of the culture. This is especially true in the church, too. Like, we get, we get, uh, we, we overemphasize the familiar things or the shiny things. We're guilty in both. It's true <laughs> because it's me, myself, and I. <laughs> we fall prey to the same desires and the same sins of mankind from the beginning of time. And we see very clearly here Israel is pursuing me, myself, and I with the gods of their culture, and they have forgotten Yahweh, and they go after these gods. And if we're not careful, and if we're not uh, intentional, we can too. Where does this apostasy, this turning away and and following and, and leaving God behind, which is apostasy, where does that lead Israel? Well, Verse 8, leads them into servitude. You read along in your Bible, verse 8 says, Therefore, because of Israel leaving God behind and forgetting him and serving these idols, these cultural gods, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshatham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Reshatham eight years. As a result of their apostasy, as a result of their turning away and pursuing the the gods of culture, me, myself, and I, and and these Baals, God sells them to the king of Mesopotamia. This is the language, again, of handing off a daughter in marriage. He hands them off. We talked last week about this, that it's the same language of giving them up to their desires, is what we read about in Romans 1 which we talked about last week, is that God, God is not going to force us to love him. He's not going to force us to choose him. He wants us to. He desires us to. And he will pursue us in, until we do. But he's not going to hold us hostage to that. And if we choose to pursue these other things, he's going to let us. Which is the idea of handing them off to their desires. We see also here in verse 8 that God is the one who raised up a pagan king from Mesopotamia. I had to really work on the pronunciation of of that king's name, and even still it's hard to say. But we see clearly that God is the one who raised up this pagan king. This this king from Mesopotamia was not an Israelite. He was was from Mesopotamia, and, and he was a king of the area, And God raises him up and sells Israel to his hand, to his servitude. 
And we see that as a result, Israel, God's chosen people, were slaves for eight years under this king. And one might read this and, and hear what I'm, what I'm unpacking and go, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that God, Yahweh, personal God, Lord of the universe, God of love, would raise up a pagan king and sell God's chosen people to serve under him. That doesn't sound like a good, loving God to me. Does God really use godless leaders? Yes! Yes, he does. All throughout history, he has. All th- since the beginning of the time, he does. But not for the reason you might think. All throughout Scripture, we see God allowing Israel to pursue their desires, even if that's not him. And then them experience servitude, slavery, bondage, and realize, this sucks. <laughs> Where's God? Where's God? Romans 13.1, I'd like to read for you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This speaks to God's sovereignty over all the nations and all of their leaders. There's not a single leader from any country around the world who God hasn't appointed to lead that country, including ours. And we are told as believers to submit ourselves to those rulers because God is the one who has placed them into power and authority because there's only an authority that comes from God. And this can make us uncomfortable because that means we have to be subject to the ones we think are evil. The bad ones too. That's an unpopular belief in today's day. The reality is if if we believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in the fact that he is the one who places people into power and authority and we don't like what they are doing in their leadership, we, instead of complaining and, and instead of uh, trying to usurp or, or whatever the case may be, we as believers should pause and go, oh boy, what have we done to deserve this? What have we done to deserve this ruler? Because God is sovereign. And God is good. So if we are experiencing an evil ruler, there's a reason he has in mind for us. Because God is sovereign over all. Any authority, any person in authority is brought into that place because God has ordained it. Even the bad ones. We see very clearly here that uh, God raises this pagan king to bring Israel to a place which we're getting ready to read now in in the first part of verse 9 where because of him, because of Israel choosing to leave God, to leave Yahweh in their apostasy and go after these cultural gods, God says, okay, I'll let you do that and I'm going to raise up this uh, pagan king 
from Mesopotamia, and you're going to serve him for eight years. And in their servitude, in their slavery, in their what, and, and all of that would come with that, they finally get to the point after eight years where this is how they respond. They cry out. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, After eight years, the people cry out to Yahweh because of their enslavement to this king. So, yes, he lets us serve under these, these bad rulers because he's trying to do what? Draw us back to himself. This is also true when we experience conflict. The goal of of Conflict is to draw reconciliation. Like Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation, right? So the goal of conflict is to reconcile and win your brother back, right? So I experienced this in my last church. I had some, some volunteers that were difficult to work with from time to time, and we had much conflict. And any time I would try to resolve or try to figure out what the conflict was, Oh, we're not in conflict. I think that term is called either gaslighting or ghosting now. Like, like I knew something was wrong. I would directly address it. And any time I would, they'd go, oh, there's nothing wrong. There's no conflict here. And I felt imprisoned by that because I knew there was conflict. And, I, and Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation to win people back into fellowship right? In the same way, and so anyway, where I was going with that story is I went to a training that the Alliance offers called uh, Alliance Peacemakers. And they have three different levels of this, and, and Amy and I went to this, and there was a moment in that training where I found freedom from this, because I felt like what I, I repeatedly would come to the individual and, and say, I, I know we're in conflict. I know there's something going on. How can, I, how can we reconcile and I was met with, there's nothing wrong. And I'm sitting here in bondage because I'm like, I can clearly tell there's something wrong in this training. And you know, that, you know these things, right? But it, it, sometimes it takes hearing somebody say it and teach it to you where the light bulb goes on. And the, the teacher goes, if God is sovereign, if we truly believe that God is sovereign, and we truly believe that God is good, then the conflict we're in has a purpose. Because we trust that God is sovereign, and we trust that God is good. And so the conflict we find ourselves in is for a purpose. And this is what the Israelites were experiencing after eight years. They were in conflict. They were, they were, they were slaves to this pagan king. And they finally get to a point where they're like, Something needs to change because this stinks. And they cry out to Yahweh. What's interesting to note here to me, oh, this cry out language literally means to call out, to, to, to cry to. And it's interesting because they forgot Yahweh. And here, after eight years, they called to the one, the only one who could rescue them. 
They get, it took them eight years. They do the right thing, by the way, by calling out to Yahweh in their servitude. They respond by calling out to him, and they recognize in this moment that he's the only one that could rescue them from the place that they were in. They do the right thing. It took Israel eight years to see the need to be rescued. They served for eight years before they call out. Sometimes it takes a long time to see the need to be rescued. And we live in a culture today where when they hear the gospel presentation, they go, I don't need to be saved. What do I need to be saved from? I don't need to be rescued. I'm great. My life is great. There's a reality here that I think we need to spend a little bit of time with, and and that's that God reveals to us our need to be rescued. Through this punishment of eight years, God reveals to Israel their need to be rescued. But we have to identify and respond to it. We have to be willing to respond to that need. The world needs to be ready to respond to it. Our culture here in America, we've lost the concept of needing anyone to rescue us. Because it's me, myself, and I. And I can pull myself up by bootstraps and I can, I can do it all on my own. We're a very individualistic culture. We don't need anybody. Because I can do it myself. And that's, got, that's, and that's just multiplied and exponentially throughout generation to generation to generation. And quite honestly, it's gotten to the point where the culture today has no understanding that they need a Savior to rescue them because they're their own Savior. It all lands on them. Or, or, the government's my Savior. I'll rest on the government. We see... Here, uh, let me back up. The reality is the world knows they need a savior. The world knows. Every single one of us knows we need rescued. The problem is we look to the things of this world to rescue us. Even ourselves. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography, it could be uh, success, it could be pride, it could be comfort, it could be security, it could be all of these different things that lead us to the reality that I, I, I know I need something. And the world tells us that if we just do these things, we'll be good. So I believe that the world knows deep down inside that they need rescued from something. They just can't identify what it is. Then the next part of the cycle here, remember it started with apostasy, which then turned into servitude, which then led to the people crying out. And then the second part of verse 9 through 11 says this, The Lord raised up a deliverer 
for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Reshatham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshatham, so that the land had rest for forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. We see that God raised up a deliverer. That word in, in the Hebrew here literally means avenger or defender, a helper, a rescuer, one bringing salvation. We see that this individual here in the context is Othniel, who happens to be Caleb's nephew. If you remember who Caleb is, Caleb was one of the 11 spy, or one of the 12 spies that go into the land with Moses, right? And Joshua, Caleb and Joshua, right? They were the only two that came back from that spying and said, yes, the Lord will give us this land. They were outvoted, and therefore they had to keep wandering the desert. Same Caleb. Caleb's nephew is Othniel. We also see in Judges 1, 8 to 15, that uh, Caleb <laughs> ends up uh, giving his daughter to Othniel because he, he makes that proclamation in, in Judges 1 where he says, anyone who goes in and conquers this land, I'll give my daughter in marriage. And so not only is Othniel Caleb's nephew, he's also Caleb's son-in-law as a result, which was kind of common back then, but... That's neither here nor there. But uh, that's Othniel. We don't know much about Othniel other than this. Well, other, than, other than being willing to serve the Lord and, and willing to go to battle, we don't know anything else about Othniel. And God raises him up as a deliverer. We do see, uh, I'm sorry, he, we do know that he's from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so there is a little bit more that we do know about him. He's from the tribe of Judah, and we also know, if you read through the, the book, that he's the, last, he's the first and the last leader from the tribe of Judah that's going to be raised in this, in this book of Judges. Which is a foreshadowing, of course, of the line of Judah, who we know as Jesus, who came from the tribe of Judah, who brings ultimate and once-for-all salvation for the rest of the world. This is a foreshadowing of a coming salvation that's going to be better, that's going to be more perfect. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus and his salvation that he brings to us. But what's important to notice here is that the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. And once the Holy Spirit was upon him, th this means above or over. Not, notice that it's not indwelt, above or over, upon. Okay? This is important. We're going to get here. The Holy Spirit was upon Othniel. And with the Spirit, Othniel defeats the king. And the land has rest for 40 years before Othniel dies. Othniel was a man who was, was willing to be used by the Lord. The Lord places the Holy Spirit upon him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and Othniel's submission to that, they defeat the king, this, this pagan king. And as a result of this pagan king uh, being taken care of, the people have rest for 40 years. 
No more war. No more servitude. They are saved or rescued. Application. We all need rescue or salvation. Every single one of us. In the Alliance, one of the, you know, we have what we call the fourfold gospel. One of the pillars of our faith and what we, what we claim is that Christ is our Savior. We base that on Acts 4.12 where it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ is our Savior. He's the only perfect Savior. He's the only one that offers salvation that endures the test of time. True believers who have repented of their sin and surrendered their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, knowing and understanding that salvation is only found in him, nothing else, receive the Holy Spirit to indwell them. This is a huge shift because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would only descend upon an individual, never in. But because of Christ's death and sacrifice on the cross, paying the penalty for sin once and for all, his blood made a way to cleanse our vessel to receive a holy God. So that all who would repent of their sin and surrender their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are cleansed, purified by that blood to receive the Holy Spirit inside. And the big thing to note is that it's the very same spirit that we see working in, the, in Othniel to conquer pagan kings. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, this is, a, this is a prophecy of what we now are living in. Where God says, and I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you. Notice, within you. Not upon you, within you you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules Romans 8 11 says that if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead uh, I think I might have a typo there give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you the point there is that the spirit dwells in you 1 Corinthians 3 16 says do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. No longer is the Old, temp Old Testament temple a thing. You don't have to go to a location to experience God anymore. You don't have to go to a location to worship God anymore. You don't have to go to a priest who intercedes for you anymore. That system is gone. Because, we because each of us represent the temple. Each one of us is God's temple where we have God himself in the Holy Spirit residing in us. Now, do we see very clearly in Scripture where we are commanded as God's people to gather and fellowship and, and worship together? Absolutely. But not for the same reason as the Old Testament. You take God with you when you leave this place. When you encounter lost people, guess who they get an opportunity to encounter? God, Jesus, in you. 
So that begs the question, why don't we see that same power today? Why don't we see the same power in the Holy Spirit today as we, as we read very clearly about in Scripture? Well, two primary reasons that Scripture gives us. One happens to be in Ephesians 4.30 where it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The instruction here is to not grieve the Holy Spirit. This uh, in the Greek means to distress or to cause grief. Well, how are we supposed to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does that even mean? Well, it's doing something the Spirit has not led us to do. This is called the sin of commission. This is acting out in a way that God hasn't asked you to do or hasn't led you to do, including sin, of course. But we grieve the Holy Spirit when we act in these ways. Because remember, the life of a Christ follower is one of surrender to, the, to God and allowing God to shepherd us and to lead us as a people And we grieve the Holy Spirit when we do what he hasn't led us to do. And you might go, well, that that doesn't seem fair or that doesn't seem right. Well, that's the me, myself, and I talking again. If Jesus is our Lord, we do what he says. It's a life of surrender. It's a life. It's a a moment-by-moment surrendering, and he will lead us if we allow him to. The second one would be 1 Thessalonians 5.19, where it says, do not quench the Spirit. Quenching here means to extinguish or to suppress. We're commanded, do not quench the Spirit. This is not doing something that the Holy Spirit would have us to do. This is the sin of omission. This is when the Holy Spirit stirs something in your, in your soul and you say, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. We quench, we pour water on that fire stirring inside of us. And unfortunately, historically in the church, especially in our, in our denominations and our faiths that are, are, let me be very careful here, less charismatic where we go, well, it's got to be right here in the word or else it's too dangerous. Where we don't allow the spirit to move. We quench the Holy Spirit. And we do the same thing in our lives where we say, I'm not going to listen to that because that's, that's hard or that's difficult or that's scary and we, we squeeze and we suppress the Holy Spirit and all the power that comes from that, from him, excuse me, from him. We have to be a people who are willing to, yes, live by this book, but also be led by the Spirit. The Spirit will never contradict what's in this word, ever, 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 ever. But we have to be willing to have ears to hear his spirit, to be led by his spirit. And that's a feeling. And, that, and, that, and, and yes, feelings can lead us astray, but that's why we test it with scripture. We have to be willing as a people, as a church, to unquench the spirit and not be afraid of what that's going to, what that's going to do. 
And I believe that we're in the place that we are in history, in the church today, because too many churches have feared what the Holy Spirit might do among us and through us. And we've gotten into our safety zone of it's got to be in this word. And yes, it does have to be in this word. But the Spirit will never contradict that. We have to get better at surrender and listening to that leading, to that still small voice inside of us. And when we do, God will do things. Because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That same power that moves mountains lives inside of us if we would allow him to work. One of the issues that we see in the church that the sins of, of commission and omission are just one of, of many, but it, it's the reality that we don't repent of those things. We don't surrender those things. We don't turn back to God through our repentance. Oftentimes, what comes out is remorse. I'm sorry that I did this. But that's not the same thing as repentance. True repentance is a re-surrendering, a remaking up our mind that Christ is Lord. And I think there's many, 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 many reasons. Let me not boil this down to one simple point. That's not fair to anyone. That's not fair to any church. It's not fair to anything. But I think one reason clearly is unrepentant sin in the individual and the corporate body of Christ. God wants to use us and will use us if we simply come and we surrender. Would you pray with me as we come to a time of of closing our time in the word and then we'll transition to our time of communion. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, this is never easy. It's, it's never an easy message to, to preach about the need of repentance, the need of surrender. Uh, Lord, uh, in our culture, it's so difficult to surrender me, myself, and I. But Lord, that's the heart of sin, is I. It's right smack dab in the middle. Lord, I believe you have wonderful plans for your church in this age. Lord, we have a harvest that is plentiful and and ready for the gospel to be preached and, and to be received and for your Holy Spirit to do mighty, powerful things in this day too. But Lord, you want all of us. You want our hearts. You want us to surrender the me, myself, and I's. You want us to surrender and repent and, 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 re, and rely solely on you. Just as you did for Israel in these days. Lord, we're thankful because of your son dying on the cross and his blood paying the payment for our sin. That those who repent and believe in Jesus have the, the ability to simply come and do that over again certainly not because we deserve it. 
Lord, I don't know everybody's story in here, and I don't know where everybody finds themselves this morning or, or where, you know, later on if they're listening, Lord. But, but, I, but I sense, Lord, you, you want more of us. You want us to let go of the me, myself, and I's. And you want us to see what you will do if we were willing to do that. So, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to do that, that you would convict us where we need convicted, that where you would comfort us where, where we might be mourning, uh, Lord, but that you would lead us in that. For you are a good God, and you are sovereign. So, Lord, we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.